Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we conclude our series, Dinner with Jesus, with a message titled, Something Better is Coming. In this series, we've been looking at stories about Jesus and food. And today, as we continue with the story of Jesus having dinner with a prominent Pharisee, lead pastor David Fossil reminds us that what Jesus was saying and everyone was trying to hear was that there's something better coming. Listen, as we're challenged to hear and respond to Jesus' invitation, and that just like Jesus, we need to be intentionally and lovingly inviting people to something better. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. That's going to be on page 1047. Luke chapter 14, grab the study guide that's in your program. There was this lady who was uh, not doing well. She was elderly. She had uh, not much time left um, to live. And so she wanted to meet with her pastor. She wanted to go over what songs she wanted sung at her funeral service and what Bible verses she wanted to read. Sometimes people do that. And so the pastor met with her and they figured all that out. And, and then she said, Pastor, I've got this one really important request. It's going to sound a little strange, but it's probably the most important request I have. When, when, and you got to make sure with the funeral director that you guys figure this out. When I'm in my casket, I want to make sure that someone puts a plastic fork in my hand. And he's like, what? I, I mean, I understand this, that what songs you want sung and verses you want read, but what's with the plastic fork? She goes, I, I love my church. She goes, one of the things I most love about church is church potlucks. You guys like church potlucks? She goes, not, not the new church potlucks, because people are kind of busy, you know, they'll just go get a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm talking about the old church potlucks where someone would slave for, for, you know, all Saturday, and it was like a competition, right? What dish to bring? I love my church potlucks. She goes, and invariably, every once in a while, there'd be a church potluck. And um, someone would, you know, they would be clearing all the dishes and all the plates, and, and as they were clearing, someone would lean over and they'd say, they'd say, keep your fork. Keep your fork. And anytime someone said that to me, keep your fork, I knew something better was coming. I knew something better was coming. Maybe velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. Something better was coming. So when I'm in my casket, I'm holding my little plastic fork. Invariably, someone's going to go, what's with the plastic fork? Pastor, I want you to remind everybody that comes to my funeral, something better is coming. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you are saved and born again, something better is coming. We are wrapping up our series called Dinner with Jesus. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I know I have. And today we're looking at a story called the the parable or the story of the great banquet. And the whole point, we're going to look verse by verse at this story in Luke chapter 14. But the whole point of the story is Jesus saying to that audience at that meal and Jesus saying to you this morning, don't ever forget That in Jesus Christ, something better is coming. That's the whole point of the story. So we're going to start reading through it. We're going to make a couple points, but don't forget that's the main point. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 15. Last week, we actually covered the first 14 verses, and it'll make sense in a moment what's going on. When one of those at the table, at the banquet with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, It's tempting to skip over this, but it's important. I've highlighted that someone heard Jesus say something. Well, what was it that Jesus did? What did he hear that made him kind of make this innocuous statement about the feast in the kingdom of God? 
Chapter 14 of Luke starts at synagogue. It's, it's synagogue day. Everybody goes to synagogue as a good Jew. Jesus is the guest teacher. After synagogue, one of the prominent Pharisees invites Jesus over to his house for a meal. But it, we, we saw last week that they're observing him. They're watching him. They're trying to gain some information to use against him, right? Jesus knows their motives. And he's like, okay, here we go. And, and, and essentially, some people have described what Jesus does in Luke chapter 14. He's the dinner guest from hell. Because he makes everybody uncomfortable with three things that he does. These three things. Let's put them on the screen real quick. He does this. One, he breaks a religious taboo. What did he do? He healed someone on the Sabbath. In those days, you weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to do any kind of a work, including heal or help anybody. Now, for us, that's not a religious taboo. For us, let me give you a religious taboo, the equivalent. Um, in our society, in our culture, it's customary... Uh, when some, when, when we're praying to take off your ball cap, isn't it? We take off your, or the national anthem, you take off your ball cap. Why do we do that? That's a sign of respect in our culture. You do know, however, that, uh, the Bible, the Bible tells you, it never tells you you have to take off your baseball cap when we pray. You know that, right? We know that. But still, in our culture, it's something you do. And if someone doesn't do it, you're like, look at them. Essentially, we talk behind their back, open our eyes during prayer, and we stare at them, right? Well, essentially, that's what Jesus is doing. He heals on the Sabbath. He shouldn't be doing that. To make matters worse, what he does is he now insults the guests. And he basically says, you guys are a bunch of punks. You're a bunch of prideful, cocky punks. I had the word punk, but that's essentially what he's saying. You are prideful. The first thing you do is you run into the banquet hall and you get all the best seats. That was last week. Now, he tops it off. He's just broken a religious taboo. He just insults all the guests. Then he insults the host. And he basically says, your your invitation list, your guest list, is not appropriate and it's not complete. So when you get to chapter, uh, to verse 15, the tension is filling the air. Everybody's on the edge of their seat, right? Uh, uh, you know, everybody's nervous. You know, it's not everybody's laughing, having a good time at the party and at the banquet. No, everyone's nervous. So someone trying to kind of change the subject, they're like, ah, thank you, Jesus. Uh, uh, well, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's kind of like you and I saying, God bless you after someone sneezes. It's just kind of let's change the subject. Let's move on. Well, Jesus is in a mood. It, that's almost what you get. And he's like, oh, you want to talk about the feast of the kingdom of God? You want to go there? You want to tango? Let's go. You know, he's just he's after their throats, right? So verse 16 Jesus says, let me tell you a story. You want to know about the feast? You want to know about the banquet? Let me tell you. Let's put it up there. Here's what he says. Jesus replied, starts to tell him a story. There was a certain man. He was preparing a great banquet. That's this great feast. And he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had, who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. This is packed with stuff. Let's break it down. The whole the idea of the feast or the great banquet, the Bible says that one of the first things that will happen in eternity when we meet with God is there's going to be a big party in the sky. There's going to be a big banquet. Now, some people go, ah, that's not literal. That's, that's not really going to happen. Be careful. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is, is, is in the upper room and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you know what he says to his disciples? He's got the bread. He's got the wine. He says, you see the, the cup? I will not drink from the fruit of the vine, wine. I will not drink anymore until the big great party and the great banquet. So even Jesus seems to suggest, no, 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 we really are going to party. 
That's one of the first things we're, we're going to have food like it's going to be like hometown buffet, but really crazy good and no calories. You eat as much as you want. No calories. Right. So we're going to do that. And now in the meantime, what what's happening is is this certain man who is God in the story. This certain man is giving out as many invitations as he can. You guys want to come? You can come. You guys want to come? You can come. You guys want to come? You can come. And that's called salvation. I want you at the party. I want you at the banquet. I will give out as many invitations as possible to be at that great banquet feast of the end times, right? Now, there's a little bit of confusion in that at the end of verse 17, it seems like he makes an invitation and then he sends a servant to give a second invitation. And it's because in those days, there were two invitations to the banquet. You see, in our day, if I'm going to have a barbecue... Uh, what I do is I send, I send out an Evite or put it on Facebook or something, and then Sandy guy go to Costco and we buy a uh, hundred frozen hamburger patties and put them in the freezer in the fridge and wait for a couple weeks. That's not how they did it in those days. They didn't have any fridges. They didn't have any freezers. So what, what they did is this. On Friday morning, the master sends me out with the clipboard, and he's like, James, you want to come to the party? Okay, you guys are in. James and Ariana are going to be there. Okay, you guys want to come? Brigitte, Brigitte and Kevin are going to be what are you? Oh, you guys can't make it. That's right. And so I go and I talk to all of you. We're having a party tonight. Tonight in just a little while. And we're all going to have a great time. So I get a list of everybody that's going to make it. Then I go back to my master. I give him the clipboard. He counts up how many people are going to come. And based upon the count, well, that's how many chickens he butchers. And that's how many tri-tip he makes. Because he's got to do it all fresh. They got to do it all right then. So now, once they got all that ready, now we go back to the kitchen and the kitchen crew slaves all day long. We don't have convection ovens. We don't have microwaves. We just have fire pits. So we don't know. It might be 5.30 that it's done. It might be 7.30. But it's going to happen tonight. So when it's almost all done, now the master sends me back out and comes to we're ready. It's warm. It's hot. Let's go. Let's eat. That's what happens. And that's what's going on right here. They issued the first invitation and you say, I'll be there. Now, in our day and age, if I were to invite you to a wedding or I invite you to the to the graduation party of one of my kids, I send that sucker out a month in advance. And you answer me a month in advance. But we all instinctively know that between the time you say yes and the month, there's a lot of things that could happen, right? You might get sick and can't make it. You might forget. You might have something that you've got to go out of town. Some emergency might come up. So there's a chance that you say yes to the invitation, but you can't make it. But in this case, to say yes in the morning and not show up that very afternoon is rude. It's downright rude. Maybe one guy gets a migraine in the middle of the afternoon and he can't make the party. But you should be able to make it. And that's the implication. Everybody would understand that. One small problem, verse 18, here's what we read. But they, everybody that got invited, all alike began to make excuses. An excuse is something we come up with to get out of something we said we would be at. 
or something we would do. Speaking of excuses, I heard of this woman who went to jury duty. And like most people, she didn't want to be on the jury. You know, we don't like to take up a week or two weeks of our time. And so she told the judge, I am so sorry, but I cannot be on this jury. I can't be on this jury. And uh, well, why can't you be on this jury? She goes, because I don't believe in capital punishment. And he says, oh, well, excuse me, ma'am, but this is a civil case. It's a civil case. We won't be dealing with that. It's a civil case involving a husband who spent $200,000 of his wife's money on drinking, gambling on other, and on other women. And she goes, oh, well, in that case, I would be happy to serve on the jury. And I also want you to know that I changed my mind on capital punishment. <laughs> we always come up with excuses for something we don't want to do. In this case, the excuses that are given are lame. When they are said, they come across as lame excuses. This is not, I had an emergency appendectomy and I'm going to Kaiser. These are all lame excuses. Let me show you what I mean. There's three excuses. Let's put them on the screen. Here's what they said. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, again, we are in a different culture, but when they say this and the, ma- and the servant writes these down to, to tell his master what they said, everybody in the, st- in the audience listening to the story is like, that's lame. And let me share, share with you why. In those days, farming was one of the primary with fishing professions you did. When you bought a field, it was of high, high value. And before you bought a field, you always studied the history of the field. And by that, I mean, what did you plant last year? What did you plant five years ago? How much was the yield? Do I have to let the field sit for three years to replenish the soil? You would study this. You would find it all out. You would maybe even study the soil samples. That's what you did before you bought a field. It was that important. But when this guy says, I just bought a field and I must go see it, that's the equivalent of someone saying to you, I am so sorry, I can't make your barbecue. I just bought a, uh, I just bought a house over the phone in Rodeo. It's a three-bedroom house. They say it's beautiful. I just bought it. I'm going to go look at it right now. And you'd get off the phone and you'd be like, you know, Sandy, we're never inviting them again. They're flakes. Okay, lame. Second one, just as lame. I just bought five yoke of oxen, so 10 oxen. Again, farming is one of the primary professions. Uh, Oxen in those days was the equivalent of our tractor. If you don't have one, you're not tilling the field. But before you would buy a team of oxen, in this case, five teams, before you would buy them, you literally would, would test drive them. You'd go out to the field, you'd sit down, you'd get in the oxen, and they would let you test drive the oxen. Because if one ox is going that way and the other one's going this way, you're like, no way, this tractor sucks, right? I'm not buying these guys. You would literally test them out. This guy is basically saying, yeah, no, I can't make your barbecue because I, you know, I, I was on Craigslist and I just saw a, a used a used Honda and I, and I bought it over the phone without test driving it. I'm going to go test drive it right now. You'd be, that's, that's lame. That's the excuse you're going to give me? The last one of all the excuses is the only one I can sort of understand. Because the guy comes in, hey, party's ready, let's go, the food's on the table. He's like, I can't go. You just told me four hours ago you were going to be there. I can't go. Why can't you go? My wife won't let me. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what's going on. And every married guy knows how that feels. At some point in time, she won't let me. Right? Now, there's a little more to it. 
I just got married. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Because it, very simply, everybody listening knows that in those days, a village couldn't handle a something as big as a wedding and a major banquet on the same day. There's not enough caterers. There's not enough florists. You don't want to have double people going. No. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I don't know if it was because I'm a sports fan or not, but years ago, I, someone gave me this, but it caught my attention. But let me put what it says on the, on the front. I'll read it for you if you can't, you can't see it. It says, I've been a sports fan all my life. And right away, I was like, oh, that's me, right? Now, this is a little pamphlet on excuses, so you kind of, you'll get a feel where it's going real quickly. You know, I've been a sports fan all my life. Football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring and summer. But then you open it up, and this is what it says. It says, but... On the top left-hand corner of the square. But I'll never go to another sporting event. I'll never go to another game because... There's a guy buying tickets. They always asked me for money. The people I sat with weren't very friendly. The seats were too hard. The coach never asked for my advice. The referee made some bad calls. Some people cared more about their looks than the game. Some games went into overtime and I was getting home late. The band played music or numbers that I didn't know. There's too many games that didn't fit into my schedule. My parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. I just read a book on sports and I know more about co- the, more than the coaches. I don't take my kids to any games so that they can make their own choices. What sport they best like? You know where this is going, right? The backside of the uh, brochure says this. The pamphlet asks this question. Do you use the same excuses for not going to church? Ouch. The problem is the people that are using the excuses aren't here this morning, right? That's the problem, right? My, my point of telling you is be careful that you don't get caught. And I think it's so clever. It's so clever the way this is written, right? I'm into sports, but I'm not going to go to any game because something happened at one game years ago or something that upset me. And we use the same excuses about church. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm into God. I'm into Jesus. I'm not into church. You know, years ago, my pastor did this or someone said that. And I don't go anymore. You got to be real careful. Now, this is being playful. You have to understand. And I just just let's be honest. Can we just be honest and realize that we're not that different from the three guys in the story? Because it's easy to go. Yeah, that was a lame excuse. It's easy to point fingers. But this next slide, and I don't expect you to read it all. We can put it up there. This next slide has things that God wants you to do. Or not do. If there's things he doesn't want you to do, and we call those sin, I don't want you to do that. And then there's other things he does want you to do. They're all listed in here, and that's called obedience, right? Sin and obedience. And unfortunately, uh, many of us, well, we come up with excuses as well. Here's what I mean. Let me show you. God says, I want you to serve. And we go, yeah, I I don't have much time. I, I, I want you to be in small group and live in community. Yeah, but I don't know anybody in the small group. I'm not going to go. I want you to learn to pray with others, not just by yourself. I want you to pray with other Christians. Yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to do that. I want you to go to church. I'd love to, but my kids play travel ball, so I'm not going to be able to make it. You know, stop cussing. But they made me so mad. They deserved it. Stop having sex outside of marriage. But it feels so good. It's so old fashioned. Stop getting drunk. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not the designated driver. Stop losing your temper. But it's just my personality. It's just who I am. I want you to worship. You know, I'm not really good at singing. I don't like the songs. The drums are too loud. Yada, yada, yada. Right. I want you to tithe. I can't afford it. I got my money tied up somewhere else. I want you to study the Bible. I don't understand it. I want you to get saved. 
Yeah, but you don't understand, God. I, I, I still have a few questions. I don't have all my questions answered. Maybe later. You know what? I think I'm okay. You see, here's the reality. If we're honest, every single one of us at some point in time has been told by God to do something or not do something, and we've given him what we say is a reason, and he says, no, no, it's an excuse. Let's just call it what it is. Now, what I, I want you to understand, this next verse refers not to your pastor, it refers to your God. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it up there. Verse 21, the servant came back, reported this to his master. Then the owner, that's God in the story. The owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets, alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Again, the owner, the master of the story, that's God. And I want you to notice sometimes when you're doing Bible study, you want to you want to notice what's not there. I want you to notice that God, when I give him an excuse, when you give him an excuse, he doesn't get apathetic. Ah, whatever. He doesn't get happy. Ah, thank goodness. I didn't want them to come anyway. He doesn't get sad. Oh, that's a bummer. What am I going to do with all the food? He doesn't get discouraged. I'm going to say this plainly, and I'm not trying to be irreverent. When you give him an excuse, he gets pissed. He gets mad. Now, another little Bible study technique. When something pops off the screen that kind of catches you by surprise, and this should, because I, I don't often think about God getting pissed, getting mad and angry. The first question you always ask is, well, why is he getting so angry? Good question. Because once you understand why he's getting so angry, it's going to motivate you to not give him an excuse. There's two reasons. They're here right here. Let's put them up on the screen. The first one is priority. The second one is price. Let me help by way of stories explain what these are. Young husband sends two dozen flowers to his wife and he instructs the florist to write this on the card. Happy anniversary year number two. Unfortunately, she was not pleased when she receives the flowers because the florist made a mistake on the card. And instead, the card read, Happy Anniversary, you're number two. <laughs> Terrence thought that was funny. Everyone else was all upset about it. <laughs> when you and I give him an excuse, he gets mad because essentially what you and I are saying is, <clears throat> Yeah, God, you're number two. I'm number one. You're number two, I'm number one. So what I'm going to do is based upon my preferences, my feelings, my appetites, what I think is right for me. And if what, it, what, what, what I think is right for me happens to coincide with what you want for me, then I'll do it. But if it doesn't, I just want to be clear, God, you're number two, I'm number one. Reason number one why he gets mad. Reason number two just accentuates it. It's what I call price. This little girl has a really bad disease. The doctors tell the parents the only hope for her is for her to have a blood transfusion. And the blood transfusion, it has to have two things. Someone with the exact same blood type, and she's got a rare blood type, and someone who's overcome the disease that she has. Now, the good that's the bad news. The good news is your younger son fits the perfect match. 
They both have the exact same blood type and he overcame the illness a year ago. So if we give her some of his blood, she should be better. So the parents said, let's do it. So the doctor meets with the little boy, little boy, Johnny, I want you. Here's your, your sister's really sick. You know that, right? And if, 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 if we don't help her, she's going to die. So what we're going to do is if it's okay, we need to give her your blood. And if we give her your blood, then she's going to live. Would you do that for your sister? And the little boy, he hesitates. His bottom lip starts to quiver. He doesn't answer. And finally he goes, well, okay. So they put them both on a gurney and they've got the, you know, the, the thing in the boy's arm and the blood starts going into his sister's arm laying right next to her. And you could just see as soon as the blood starts going in, her face, her color starts to change. She starts to look a little more healthy, you know, and the procedure is almost done. And right at that moment, the little boy, Johnny, looks up at the doc and says, Doc, is this when I'm going to die? And the doc says, what do you mean? Well, when, when do I die in the procedure? And then the doc realizes why the hesitation. He realizes why the quivering lip. The, the poor little boy didn't quite understand. He actually thought that by giving his sister his blood, he, they were going to give her all his blood. He thought she was going to die. And so the doctor apologizes and says, I am so sorry, I didn't explain it well enough. No, we're just giving her a little bit of your blood. You're going to be fine. You're not going to die. But, but you see in this story... For you to get an invite to the banquet, someone had to die. His name was Jesus. So in the story, the owner, the master, says, okay, now let, let me just get this straight. I want to just be clear. You're going to accept my free gift of salvation that cost my very own son's life. But then when I ask you to do something out of obedience... You're going to tell me to take a hike. So are we, is that what you're, you're going to do? Well, I guess if you put it like that, it kind of makes sense why he gets ticked off, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He, he's asked you to put him number one. He's given such a tremendous price for you to get to the banquet, be saved. And then we blow him off. I guess, I guess now I get it. I guess now I get it. I hope you do too. The st- By the way, just real quick, you see at the bottom, I've highlighted those three or four words. So he says, well, if they're not going to come, go get the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Just a quick comment because I don't have much time. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but if, if you're in ministry or you ever do ministry, it's, it's, it's obvious very, very quickly. People who are hurting in the world, And these group qualify, poor, crippled, blind, and lame. People who are hurting in the world are much more inclined to be interested in the gospel. They're interested. My life life stinks. And they're looking for something. They're very interested in the gospel. But there's a flip side of the coin. People that are successful, wealthy, good-looking, smart, good jobs, good houses, good cars. People that are successful, and by the way, that's kind of us. I've walked the parking lot. I know the kind of cars we drive. We're doing very well off. People who are successful tend to be not as interested in the gospel or God. So let me just give you, give us a warning. Be very careful that your success doesn't cloud your thinking or your interest in the things of God. Does that make sense? Be very, very careful. It's just, that's why Jesus says it's, it's tough for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Because we have all this stuff and things going so great. Why would I need God? This is how things end. Let's put verse 22 up there. Sir, the servant said, what, what, what you are ordered has been done. Well, I already invited all these people. Now notice, there's still room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full, says God. I want my house to be full. Now, Old Testament, God's house is called the temple. In eternity, God's house is called heaven. In New Testament times, that's the times we're in, what is God's house? Go ahead, say it loud. What is God's house? You're sitting in it. This is God's house. Christian churches that proclaim the gospel, Christ, and scripture, that's his house. So now let's go back to the text. If there's still room, God wants his house to be full. So I see there's a couple empty seats here. There's about four or five here, four or five there. Question, is God or would God be more happy if next week all the empty seats were full? I'm sorry, what did you guys say? Are you sure? See, you better be absolutely sure. Do you know why? Because God wants as many people as possible to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. As many people as possible. And guess what happens if we fill all the seats? Then we add another service and fill those seats. And guess what happens when we do that? We buy a big property and build a big building. That's what we do. You see, what's happening here, and some people don't think this is very spiritual. It's right in the scripture over and over and over and over again. This is the idea of church growth. We at Bay Hills are absolutely interested in church growth. We want more people here next week than are here this week. That's why we put the attendance in the program for you. We don't want you just to be interested in the finances. That's one part of church health. But also in how are we doing, how many people are here. This is a very important deal. Now, every once in a while, when we talk about this, by the way, the, the book of Acts talks about this over and over and over again. God added to their number daily. He talks about that. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, upon this, upon you, I will build my church. He says the same thing to you. In the book of 2 Peter, and we read, God doesn't want anybody to perish, so he's patient. He wants his house to be full. As many people as possible hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereafter learning how to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. That's what he wants. Now, every once in a while when we go here, I get people that kind of give me this idea. Oh, numbers isn't that big a deal. It's not that big. And I want to tell you, it is a big deal. Uh, on the backside of your study guide, I've given you, and we're going to put on the screen, three unbiblical reasons for, for, for not growing. Let me show you what I mean. Number one, I hear people say God isn't interested in numbers. And I want to say, who says? Who says God's in, not interested in numbers? Did you know that three times in the Old Testament, God numbers the people of Israel? He literally counts them. Why? He wants to see who's there and who's not there. In fact, God is so interested in numbers, he has a book of the Bible named after it. It's called the book of Numbers. He sure is interested in numbers. Do you remember the story of the 99 sheep? Remember that? And the one that was lost? How did, how did the shepherd know he was lost? Because he counted. Oh my goodness, I've got 99. I'm supposed to have 100. I've got to go find the one that's lost. He counted. Now, every once in a while, I have church people. I had a pastor once tell me, mm, yeah, pastor, we, we don't count at our church. We don't count attendance in our church. We don't think that that's that spiritual. And I said, well, do you count your offering? 
He goes, well, yeah. I said, well, then you're saying your money's more important than your people. I know that wasn't very pastoral of me, but it felt very good to say that. It's true. We count because, by the way, you want to know, there's two reasons for the name tags. Two reasons. You want to know reason number one? We genuinely want you to get to know each other. So for crying out loud, if you part of this church, grab your name tag. Okay? Just put it on and, you know, let people know who you are. But the second reason is this. It's very easy, very quickly to find out, oh my goodness, look who hasn't been here for six weeks. Do you think that matters? You better believe it matters because those people matter to God, so they should matter to us. And you, we're trying to find, figure out any, any way we can to be better at following up with people, but don't ever say that numbers don't matter. They absolutely matter. They're not the most important thing, but they do matter. I've heard people say our church wants quality not quantity. And I want to say, why can't you have both? Why can't you have quantity, a quality and quantity? Let me ask it this way. How many of you, by show of hands, are not the firstborn in your home? Go ahead. Not the firstborn. So that you have an older brother or sister. Okay. You can put your hands down. What would have happened if your parents, after having your older brother or sister, would have said to each other, we've got the one good quality kid? Let's not worry about quantity. You wouldn't be here. I mean, it's one of the stupidest arguments I have ever heard in my life. Right? Some, see, they agree with me. They completely agree with me. Right? He's not a firstborn right there, I guarantee you. <laughs> um, you know, we are called to be fishers of men. I am not a fisherman. I, frankly, I can't stand it. I, I can't, I'm not patient enough and I can't be quiet enough. I really can't. You know, some people say you should go deep sea fishing. Let's go deep. But I can't, I'm too bored when I just sit there talking. <laughs> but anyway, I talk to friends that like to fish. And you know what my fishing fresh, fishing, <laughs> my fishing friends say to me? That's tricky to say that. You know what they say? They want as many fish as possible, quantity, and as big a fish as possible, quality. We are called to be fishers of men, not keepers of an aquarium. Don't ever forget that. Our primary purpose is not just to take care of each other. Our primary purpose is to reach this community. And so doing, it's amazing how we start taking care of each other. But quality and quantity matter. This last one, this last one touches, touches some, some people. It really where it hurts. It hits their nerve. I, 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 pastor, I just like, and I prefer small, intimate. And then they add, they love this word, friendly churches. Big churches are just not that friendly, right? Let me make two comments. One, well, first of all, let me just say I, I do sympathize. I, I really do. You want to know my favorite church size? It was about 350. About half of what we are now. 350, I loved it. I got paid a fairly decent salary, you know, and, uh, you know, fairly decent children's and, and youth for my kids. And here's the, I got to golf as much as I want. I'm not kidding. I, I love that size. I pretty much could recognize everybody. Now it's a mess. <laughs> pretty much because you're a mess, right? It's just a mess. It's much harder. And, 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 and I prefer smaller churches too. But two comments. One, when we were a church of about 100, and I remember, I remember talking to people, if you're a church of about 100, you're going to know about 75 people in that church. You want to know about 75 people. If you're at a church of a thousand, you're going to know about 75 people. It doesn't change. You just don't have enough social 
this inside, you're going to have about 75 people at church, you know. Now, I get it. You don't recognize everybody sitting around you. I get that. But now this leads to the second point, and this is the most important point, and I'm going to try and say this as, as kindly as I can, but clearly. If you go from, I prefer a small church, and now you travel into, so now I'm going to do everything to make sure we stay a small church. In other words, I'm going to buck the system. When the pastor says, hey, we have this great big thing at church, invite your friends. I'm not inviting my friends. You know what I had to do two Sundays ago? I had to park all the way at Ross to get to church. (laughs) Way too many people at church. And people subtly do that. And they subtly say things. Let me just be clear. If you go and you take that step, essentially what you're saying to the community that doesn't know Christ You guys can all go to hell. I got my ticket punched to the banquet. Good luck on you. And let me just say, as the pastor of this church, that is always and and forever unacceptable. As long as there's one person, and I mean one person within driving distance of this church that doesn't know Jesus Christ, we must want to reach them for Jesus Christ. And anything else is selfish. Yes, it's hard to grow. I get that. It's hard to grow, but it, and, and let me just add this. And, and I try, really, it, I'm not upset at you liking a smaller church. But if you really decide, I just prefer smaller churches, then go find a smaller church. And if I bump into you in the supermarket, I won't be upset at you. I will hug you and I will go, I hope you're doing great and I hope the church is. But find. A smaller church, if that's what you want. <clears throat> but if you decide to stay, you better be committed to do what it says in verse 23. The, the master says to you, compel them to come into my house. In other words, that means you are to do anything and everything you possibly can to make sure every single seat in this church is filled with your friends and your family members and your neighbors, people you care about. You compel them. Now, by the way, compel, some people have taken that the wrong way. In the Crusades, they thought it meant carry a sword. And I'm going to compel them to go to church. And if they don't go to church, we're just going to stab them. And a lot of people went to church, right? That's not what that means. Compel means encourage them and motivate them and pray for them. You know, and, you know, bribe them, take them out to dinner if they go to church with you. Do what, explain things to do to them. Do whatever you got to do to get them to church or to share the gospel with them. This is a huge, huge deal. And at Bay Hills, we will always be, I don't know if we will always grow, but we will always be interested in growing. You need to know that, okay? The the, the whole thing ends like this, and it's kind of scary. Verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you, not one of those who were initially invited. Think about that. Everybody who got that initial invitation, not one who, who got the initial invitation will get a taste of my banquet. So here's the final thought. God's invitation can be refused. He will never twist your arm and force you to follow him. He just won't. Does he want you to? Yes. Will he force you? No. 
His invitation, God's invitation can be refused, but please understand it doesn't always come with a rain check. Do you understand what I'm saying there? When I was in sales for the first couple of years right out of college, this is one of the things my sales manager taught me. When you're trying to sell a product, never ask questions that are going to lead them to say no. Because the more they say no, the easier it is to say no. And you won't get a sale. You always ask questions that lead them to say yes. Hoping that at the end they will actually get the product. So if you're selling a car, you don't ask them, do you want to buy the car? Because they might say no. You ask them, aren't these leather seats comfortable? Yes. Isn't the navigation system wonderful? Yes. You ask them yes questions. Hoping that they will, yes, buy the car. Again, I I don't want to dumb it down, but it kind of works the same way with Jesus. The longer you say no to him, the harder your heart gets. The longer you say no to him, the easier it is to say no to him. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. There's one of three things. I want you to pick one of them. I want you to accept the invitation to attend the banquet. You know what? If you show up to the banquet, it might mean a a little less food for me. I'm okay with that. I want you there. I'm pretty sure he's going to bring out another tray of ribs or tri-tip or whatever they're going to have. I want to compel you, encourage you. I almost want to beg you, say yes to Jesus. You've got to RSVP. It's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to go to church. You literally have to accept the invitation. You have to say yes to Jesus Christ. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. And as your pastor and someone who cares about you, if you've not done that, if you've kept saying no, I'm begging you, say yes today. Say yes today to the invitation. The second one is remember that if you're born again, if you're saved, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You guys remember the story I started with? Uh, On your way out, everybody is going to get a plastic fork. I've instructed the ushers, if you don't take one, they're to stab you with it. So you better take one. (laughs) It won't hurt too bad, but it'll leave a little bit of a mark, okay? And I want you to take it. I want you to throw it in your purse. I want you to put it in your ashtray. It's going to break. It's just one of these little plastic. It's going to last about a week. But when you see it, you know what I want you to remember? The best is yet to come. I hope life is good for you. Um, But sometimes, especially when it is good for you, we get so caught up in today, in now, in earth, And as believers, he teaches us to focus on eternity. Why? Because the best is yet to come. Hold on to your fork. So just that reminder is important, okay? The last one, proactively, intentionally, and lovingly hand out the invitations to the banquet. Did did you notice in the story, the master always stays home and never goes out to hand out the invitations? Did you notice that? He calls the servants and says, here's a stack of invitations. Go hand them out. The servant is you. And this morning, God gives you a stack of invitations to his banquet at the end of time. And he says, you know, those people you care about. You better give them an invitation. I want you to do it proactively, intentionally, lovingly. And see, here's the thing. Some of us have stopped doing that. We've given up. And I'm here to remind you, don't give up. There's too much at stake. Figure out a different way to approach that person that said no to you a hundred times because there's a lot at stake. Okay? So pick one of them. Okay? Let's close in a word of prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want you to take a moment to reflect on what you've learned today.
to think through what's the one thing that God wanted me here to process and apply to my life. Just take a moment and think about it. Heavenly Father, this series has been a good reminder that meals, they're not just about filling our stomach. They're opportunities to have conversations with people we care about, our family. They're opportunities to catch up with friends. They're also opportunities to have deep conversations about what matters most in life. About you. Father, help us not waste our meal times. Especially when we're talking and having conversation with people who have not yet connected to you. Give us opportunities, little glimpses to, to open up spiritual conversations. Help us be wise in how we handle that. Father, as we wrap up this series and as we look at this story, thank you for the reminder that we are not to be focused only here on earth. And, and for many of us, life is good. And we, we like life. Especially for those of us whose life is good. Remind us the best is yet to come. Father, we want to confess that some of us have given you excuses, especially as it relates to sharing our faith, to giving out invitations. You've reminded us today that it is our task as a church, it is our task as individuals to do anything and everything we can within reason to make sure every single one of these seats are full with people that are hearing about your good gospel and about the difference you can make in our lives. Give us opportunities to do that, we pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here today and you've never said yes, you've never RSVP to that invitation, if you want to do that this morning, I want to compel you and encourage you to do that. I want you to pray this very simple prayer. Dear God, I, I get it. And I do still have some questions. And I still I don't understand everything in the Bible, but I get it. I, I want to be at that banquet. And today I'm going to turn in my RSVP. Today I say yes to Jesus. And I don't do it for the banquet. I do it because I know I need forgiveness for my sins. And I trust in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross. And I believe that he proved himself to be God in raising from the dead. From this day forward, I will follow you from this day forward. Make me the kind of person you want me to be, God. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, if you are SVP, I wonder if you could just slip up your hand so I could see it. Just real quick, slip it up real quick. Like the five people in the first service. I see that hand, two, three hands. Anyone else? Four. Anyone else? I see that hand in the back. Anyone else? Just slip it up real quick. Heavenly Father, for the five or so people in first service and seven or so people in this service, the 12 new people, brand new table at the big banquet in the sky at the end of time. Father, we know that you are rejoicing and we rejoice with you. Father, for these people who've taken this important step of saying yes to Jesus, remind them it's not just about getting saved. Now it's about being a fully devoted follower of Christ. Help them take their next steps. Father, I pray we would come alongside them and encourage them and help them. Father, we love you. And we will do our very best when hearing from you on whatever topic. I know that what you most impressed upon me this week is the feelings you have towards me when I give you an excuse. And I don't want you to feel that way about me, Father. Give me the discipline 
Give me the perseverance to follow through and obey you in everything you've taught us. Help us be that kind of a people and that kind of a church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.